Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Ron Butler, is a veteran mortgage broker who I refer to as a GOAT, the greatest of all time, although his humbleness will not allow him to go there. But having said all of that, in his multi-decade career, he has been involved in every facet of the broker channel, from private mortgage lending to direct-to-consumer digital mortgage origination. His brokerage, Butler Mortgage Inc., is a family business founded with his sons, with mortgage origination volumes of well over $1 billion per year for the past many years. And after personally reviewing tens of thousands of mortgage applications, his insights on residential mortgages in Canada are both granular and wide ranging. Ron has served as FSRA and TACC committee and has been a main platform speaker at numerous mortgage professional events in Canada. And Ron's perspective on industry trends is really sought after, why I was so excited to have him on the show today. But he is sought after by news media like Reuters, CBC, CTV, Report on Business, Financial Post, the Toronto Star, and many, many others. And today, he is sharing his wisdom and insights with me right here on the Everyday Millionaire podcast. And without any further chat amongst us, let's get this show started. Ron Butler, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire. Thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. You know, it's interesting, Ron, is that you and I uh, cross paths on Twitter. You're a much more robust writer and uh, participant in the Twitter world than I am. Although we've never, this is the first time we've actually met and we're not even face to face, but the first time we have a conversation. But I do feel like I know you because you're so articulate as you do your Twitter stuff. And let's kind of open up the conversation where I like to go because my introductions never do justice to what you describe. So when somebody says, Ron, what do you do? What's your answer these days? Well, you know, I'm old. You know, I'm 66, so I, I, I really should describe myself as kind of setting the tighter, even though I'm spending uh, 26 hours a week on Twitter. <laughs> My youngest son supports me in this part of our business. Um, he's done a great job, and the, of course, as time goes by, he's, he takes over more and more of the day-to-day operations. Uh, I have been in this for business for a very long time. It's coming up on 29 years. And then, uh, boy, it's, it, I can't say it seems like yesterday because it doesn't, but it's, uh, it's a long time in one, in one business. That's a shift. You know, I was sharing with you earlier that I was really excited to have Ron Butler, Butler Mortgage. Uh, I joke, you know, that, uh, but there's truth to it, right? You're a goat. You're the greatest of all time in that world. You, you, no. <laughs> I am so far from the greatest of all time. <laughs> there's people, there's like, there's somebody started 
Rocket Mortgage in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. That's, he, that's somebody, there's a couple of partners who started that with Rock Capital and grew it and grew it. And, uh, no, no, there's there's so many more goats than I am. I'm no, no goat, except maybe that might look like a goat someday. <laughs> uh, but the, the truth is, in the Canadian marketplace, there's bigger brokerages than ours. There's bigger brokers than I've ever been in terms of volume. Uh, I think that what I hope to bring to it is a sense of what shouldn't be done right, what's been done wrong, uh, to, to develop a better degree of honesty in our approach to particularly in Canada, to our approach to housing policy and uh, to tell more truths about what should or then shouldn't go on in the market business. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's one area I can lay claim to having a strong effect on. So, you know, first and foremost, I only want to say is I appreciate the humbleness. But, you know, when I look at certain things, you know, bigger is not necessarily better. Uh, when I think about the accomplishments of anybody who's been in the business as long as you have serving clients to the degree you have and earning the reputation that you have, it really is about not just volume, but it's also about serving the client and who you are in the context of the business you operate. So I consider that a bigger win. Uh, but I, you know, what I don't know is what are you, whose who's flag do you run under? I, I, I mean, there's lots of big brokerages out there. Do you, how do you, what, what's your operation in terms of uh, who do you run under? Nobody. Nobody. We're in it. We're going to end it. We're about LaGuardia. There's several very large networks in Canada. There's a friend of mine, Gary Morris, Browns Domain Let, huge operation, many flags, right brands. Uh, we are not part of any of them. We are completely outlook independent. Well, that in itself is a huge accomplishment. And I've had Gary on the show a couple of times over the years. He's been on our stage with the Real Estate Investment Network a couple of times. And so he has, he's one of those guys that have really, you know, bigger is better. And he's done a great job of uh, bringing together a group of brokers and uh, has done very well by that. I, I really admire what you just described in terms of who you are in this industry. And I want to, there's a, a lot of things I want to talk about with you. And, and as I said earlier, when we first got on, I'm kind of got an identity crisis because the everyday millionaire is really about seemingly ordinary individuals like yourself who have really accomplished some extraordinary things. But I think this is really a topical, like we're looking at what's going on in Canada in the housing market. Both you and I have that background and that passion to understand where housing is going, why it is where it is is today and where the hell is it going from here and it's just the weirdest thing that's unfolding that we're living through and I think there's a part of me that goes uh, having been in business as long as I have as and you as long as you have having been a part of this industry I don't know I feel like we should be able to crack the code but I'm, I'm just not optimistic given what's happening so when you look at the housing market today, it's off the charts, not enough listings, prices continue to go. Bank of Canada, you know, we can get into a whole conversation of my belief about TIFF TIF should have been fired a long time ago, but that aside, give me your kind of oversight of what you're seeing in the market. And I guess maybe even what you see as some possible fixes. Do you have that view? That's a big topic, I know, but. That's a big topic. Let's, you know, we started at the beginning that we have to accept that it's not just Canada. Uh, for some reason, a lot of the, some of the big English speaking countries, particularly Canada and Australia, look very, very similar uh, in terms of extremely high housing prices. 
Like catchphrases, batshit crazy house crisis is what we have in countries because they're very, very hard to justify. You know, I, I didn't, people say that Toronto's a world class city. God knows it. the biggest city in Canada. It's the heart of this country. It's got more head offices here than any place else times 10. But here's the crazy part we see exceptionally high prices in places that they shouldn't be high. You know, uh, if you're in, in the Vancouver area, why is a house in Agassiz, which is so far from, you know, the, the beauty of downtown Vancouver, so far, Agassiz is so far, it's a million one to buy a detached house in, in Agassiz. It, it doesn't make sense. That's an hour and 10 minute drive. We've got places out in the outskirts of uh, the 905 and past the 905, uh, Milton, Welk, Cambridge. Wild house prices. I mean, it, you know, people like to talk about Toronto like it's New York. Well, I don't know about you. I've been to Manhattan, mm -hmm. and Toronto is not Manhattan. Like, I, I don't care what anybody says. Like, Manhattan is the capital of the world. I mean, Toronto is a big, great, great big city. I love it. But it's not Manhattan. And the question becomes, if you drive an hour and a quarter away from Manhattan to, up, to going to upstate New York, You'll find lots of towns, little towns, small cities, with homes the starting price is $444,000. I mean, you drive an hour and 10 minutes away from the center of Toronto, and the house prices are still a million two. I mean, there's things about this that don't make sense. There's a number of influencing factors over the years. Maybe the key thing in the United States is they went through a housing meltdown in 2008-2009, it reversed trends, it changed the mortgage landscape, that quite frankly, millions of people lost their homes and prices fell in some regions dramatically, mm -hmm. like 50% in some regions. And that was a big reset in that country. We never had it in 2008-2009, neither of Australia, neither of New Zealand, and we had maybe a little 15% reversal for a year, and bingo, we were back out of the end in 2010, stronger than ever. So we never had that reversal, never had that beat come to Jesus moment. So we've been cruising along from, say, well, 2009, 2010, right through to the, to the, to, to the COVID on what you could call the zero interest rate program, the ZERP. Okay. There was, there was, it was very, very low interest rates, far below traditional interest rates that you or I are familiar with. You and I have seen very high interest rates in our day. You and I have seen lots of five, sevens, nines, eights, elevens, uh, mortgage rates. We've seen a lot of it. Uh, we did not see any of that for nearly 12 years, uh, culminating in COVID where we saw fixed mortgage rates for five years go down to 1.49 and very low rates down as low as less than 1%, which in a climate of 2% inflation is a negative rate in reality. So it's like we never saw it or never imagined it happen. And again, the market reacted accordingly and the market soared. So there's a lot of reasons behind these incredibly high house prices, but we thought that uh, when interest rates went to 4.5 from 0.25, like 0.25, 
to 4.5 in less than a year. That's the steepest, most aggressive rise in interest rates in the history of Canada, like period. We all thought, well, and we watched it, like prices started to come off in March of 2022, prices fell. Uh, we all tried to surmise how much they might fall. And it looked pretty grim for a few months there. Uh, and yet here we are in 2023, in uh, May of 2023, and prices indeed started rebounding. Only one year later, in March of 2023, we saw prices in the greater Vancouver area, Calgary and Toronto, Metro Toronto, Southwest Ontario. We saw them all start to rise again. So it's a, it's almost just a blink, and we've seen aggressive price increases in some of these markets. Well, now it does seem pretty pretty consistent right across the country because we are in fact seeing price increases throughout BC and again back into Alberta. We're looking at uh, prices in Calgary, not so much Edmonton. Edmonton would be the exception to really almost the whole province of Alberta, by the way. Uh, and who knows why that is. But Edmonton generally lags Calgary. But when I look at Lethbridge, when we look at what's, even what's happening in Medicine Hat, Grand Prairie, prices continue to actually have pressure upwards uh, right across. So it seems to be right across the country. I, I know that some parts of southern Ontario have softened a bit, have not come back to their pre-COVID lows, if you want to use that term. But, you know, they backed off. Let's put it this way. They backed off the 2022 highs. And so there, So when you look at it, when you assess it, we look at increasing interest rates, we see that that really slowed down things for a bit of like kind of like a heartbeat. And then we're back again. We're seeing ultra low listings, record low listings right across the country again. We're seeing ridiculous record breaking immigration into the country. And nobody seems to know the right hand of any given government provincial, federal, municipal, the right hand doesn't seem to know what the left hand is doing. Everything is tied up in bureaucracy. I don't know. I, it's hard to look into the future and be optimistic for prices coming off or slowing down. What's your thoughts? It's a good synopsis. Uh, by the way, I might be the only person living in Toronto who's been to every single one of those towns you listed in Alberta. <laughs> That's and awesome. Lived in two of them. I lived in Alberta for to almost eight years. My wife's in Alberta. My eldest son was born in Calgary. I'm originally from Vancouver. So I know this. You know it. I know this country. Yeah. I know this. Spent a year and a half in Montreal. Enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, my practice is nowhere near good enough to stay. But uh, I've seen a lot of Canada. And, you know, I'll make this, uh, I'll make this little aside. We live in a great country. Mm -hmm. It's a really great country. So everybody should make the effort to see more of Canada because it's a terrific place. It's a great bunch of people. And uh, apart from some of the real failings that we're experiencing in the last couple of years, uh, it's it's been a great country to live in. It's been great to and I concur. So, I concur totally. Uh, you know, this thing we're observing right now is not, it really should not be unexpected, even though I did not expect it. But when we start to examine the key factors at play, there's a reason behind this sudden leap of house price. You and I know enough about real estate to know that there is just an impulse to buy. Things happen in people's lives. People get divorced. People have twins. People get job transfers. There's consistently something happening 
that prompts people to want to make a house purchase or buy a bigger home. Or there's all these factors are always there. They're innate to our culture. So you can suppress it for a while. And obviously we suppressed it from March of 22. There's ultra low sales numbers throughout Canada, uh, all through the summer of 2022, horrifically low volume numbers, individual unit numbers of housing sales in the fall of 22. But you can only suppress it so long. And here's what happened. We thought, it, it, you know, and I have been through a few of these housing cycles, right? So what normally happens in a housing cycle like this when the interest rates spiked enormously, some people just, particularly when we had a variable was the most popular mortgage by all means in 2021. So we had this enormous spike in variable, enormous spike in HELOC costs. We saw all this happening and thought to ourselves, well, if this is anything like past cycles, some people are going to be forced to sell. And there's definitely going to be some people forced to sell. But what we didn't know is that 80% of the variable mortgages in Canada, the payment doesn't change. Like we sort of knew it, like I sort of added the back of my mind uh, as a mortgage broker, but it was never a meaningful thing. But when the the, the mortgage rate that the consumer, the client had went from 1.45 to 5.7, and the payment didn't change, I didn't really know that that was what was going to happen, that that kind of a thing could occur. So we had 80% of the variable rate mortgages in Canada the payments barely changed. For the people who it was changing, they some of them locked in, some of them found ways to manage it. And then for the HELOC people, some of those people just disposed of some of the HELOC debt they had. Some of the some people they might have sold the rental property, but by by it was all made manageable by the fact that so many of the mortgages were very low rates. So, I mean, Ron, sorry to interrupt. Can we unpack that a little bit so listeners understand what went on in the background? You know, you know. ultimately, to your point, you go from 1.5 to 5.7 and the payment didn't change. Let's kind of describe why that happened and why you, especially somebody like yourself in the mortgage industry, how the heck did we miss it? Well, you know, we, we it just never, in the last 20 years, we've never had the experience. It never happened before. Sure, there's been gradual movement in prime rate, and, you know, but we've never had a quarter of 1% go to 4.5 with the Bank of Canada. Hasn't happened. And that's been my life. Okay, so we we were all waiting for something to happen. And suddenly we realized these mortgages, the way they're built is they have a trigger point. So in theory, they shouldn't go into negative amortization. So using some jargon, sorry for that. Negative amortization is when your payment is not enough to cover your interest, and your mortgage actually starts to grow. The principal is not being paid down. It's actually starting to grow. So we assumed that this would be a severe trigger point that would reset a whole bunch of mortgages, but guess what? No, we'd never even bothered. I'm just being truthful here, honest to God truthful. We'd never even studied these contracts enough to realize, not so. Some of the, in many cases, these companies' mortgages could grow and grow, and there'd be a final point where they actually exceeded a certain preset amount that's in the contract. But there was an allowance for the mortgage to payment not to change and for the principal to actually increase with many lenders. And for the lenders where it was not true, 
there is a couple of lenders where every time the rate went up, the payment went up, and we heard those people, they were not happy. But for 80% of the, of the bank people in Canada, bank mortgages Canada, it, sometimes they just, the bank asks for small increases, like small increases, just to make sure that you were paying $2 down on your principal every month. Now, we just didn't really understand it. I mean, I'm here to be honest. Like, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of mortgage brokers jump out of the woodwork and say, oh, you're crazy. I knew all that precisely, and I could tell you that. <laughs> oh, I knew that. Yeah, yeah I don't okay. call me on that. Because I read like a thousand tweets uh, in the spring of 2022 that said, we're going to be in big trouble in these trigger rates set. And guess what? No big trouble. Uh, so that's the answer. The answer is variable rate contracts in Canada, which allow the principal to grow in many cases. And this is actually something that's against the law in the United States. <laughs> so, so interesting, isn't it? So when we look at what's happening, I mean, you know, my study is often of what's going on economically. And I look at an overarching economic picture, you know, I deal with, you know, and my my goal is always to educate investors because I still believe real estate is something that we want to take on as investors, as a creating a financial future and investing in real estate the right way. So, you know, we, for example, we're not big fans of pre-construction. We're definitely not big fans of buying with the only exit strategy being assignments where long-term buy and hold, you know, is generally uh, the strategy with some, you know, with some tactics that accommodate certain cycles, real estate cycles, if you will. Having said all that, I look at the economic fundamentals and I'm looking at Canada right now. Everybody's worried about uh, recession. You know, uh, is it going to be soft? Is it going to be hard? What is it going to be? I'm looking at it going, I don't see a recession coming yet. You know, there's there's not big announcements of job layoffs. I, our product, our productivity has never been great. It's always been kind of embarrassingly poor. We spend no Pretty money... Bad. Really, really bad. Yeah, we we spend no money on research and development, and right now we continue to be short in the world of employment. I saw recently, like I think it was just yesterday or today, I see RBC saying unemployment could hit six point six percent. I would go, I you know, and I said to myself, having been through many cycles in Alberta, where I'm going, that's perfect. That's actually an awesome. That's it, a great number. That's a great number. If only we could be there, you know, we could control costs, we'd have staff, we'd have better teams, people would be happier to work. I mean, it'd be just a better thing. So when I look into the future, and, and I'm very clear that yes, recessions can happen, and, and, and I'm looking and watching what's unfolding in front of us. But here's my question around this for you, Ron, is that, you know, from when we look at Canada right now, and we start to see that the housing issue is from my perspective, we bought into this or drinking this Kool-Aid, or many are, I know that you're not, but many are drinking the Kool-Aid that the government's gonna fix this problem. You know, my most recent realization and tweet is that my new definition of insanity is believing the cause of the problem being our government is going to also be the solution to the problem that they caused in our housing market. And that is just being naive. So when I look at what's happening in the housing market, we've got this in crazy, this crazy immigration. We've got uh, the Bank of Canada that does some saber rattling that says, well, we're going to, we, we're ready to raise rates. I go bullshit. And I don't, I just don't buy it. I think that, that would, 
Heavily bolstered, yes. <laughs> yes. So then I look at it and I go, okay, we are a debt-driven economy, as is the U.S., but let's just talk about Canada. We're a debt-driven economy. Our GDP is primarily driven by uh, our government taking on more debt. I don't see uh, I, I don't see how the picture can change. And if there's going to be a re- recession, it's going to be a catastrophic meltdown uh, in the financial system. That's just a kind of a really high level kind of opening to whatever conversation or whatever direction you might want to take that. Do you have any thoughts around that, Ron? Well, if you read Ray Dalio, who wrote about this nearly three, maybe four years ago now, big debt crisis is big debt crisis. I mean, he foresaw this kind of unmanageable debt growth throughout the world. You know, if you talk to some economists, they will come up with something that helped. I think it was modern monetary theory. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how much debt they get into. You can just keep up piling on debt forever as long as certain, product, certain circumstances are in place. Well, I'm not a big believer in that. The good news is I'm probably not going to ha- live to see something like a big debt crisis because I'm old and I weigh 330 pounds. So I take 16 pills a day. <laughs> so the chance of me making it uh, to uh, the big debt crisis is probably slim. But the truth is, yeah, um, this whole idea that you can, that everybody can spend eternally, one of the big shocks that came to me a few, I think it was about 10 days ago, you and I probably both saw the news, that the fastest growing sector in Canada were public employees. Oh, don't even the get me going. burdening sector, the most burdening sector. By the way, there's a lot, public employees also contain a lot of really important people. Yes. Like nurse and doctors and firefighters yep. and teachers oh. and really important people. Yeah. You know, I'm not so sure that we need all the people who work for CRA. Well, there are probably some great people there and probably some needed people there. It's an interesting stat. In the United States, they call it the IRS. Their CRA is called the IRS. On a per capita basis, the IRS in the United States collects all the taxes they seem to need to collect with a ratio of one to five versus CRA employees. That's right. They have five times fewer employees per capita than we do at CRA in Canada. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a few other little reasons for that. Like the RCRA people do a lot of things with excise tax and, and foreign export duties and stuff. Guys, they don't do with IRS. But still, it's shocking. It's shocking some of the departments that have ballooned out in size in the federal government. Uh, and that was, a, to me, a very telling stat that the fastest growing employment group in Canada are people working for the government, some form of government. And the slowest growth was in self-employment. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a, that's a tough stat to swallow. I mean, that's, you know, we need people who want to invent things and develop things and create something new and create employment. The trouble with government employment is, is that you and I are the people who are actually funding it, okay? Like, when you're talking about a self-employed person who gets out of bed and starts with nothing, then that woman is somebody who is creating employment, building a business, and actually making a huge contribution. I'm not suggesting doctors and nurses and teachers sound like a big contribution, but at the end of the day, the spark of people who start from nothing and make something is one of the most important things we have in society. And we don't have enough of them. You know, and I 100%, so I a thousand percent agree. You know, I look at what's happening and I, I really, like you, I'm, 
I'm gonna, I will, I will refer to myself as a compassionate capitalist. I don't believe that uh, we shouldn't have social programs. I think that it's our responsibility to look after those individuals who don't have the facilities or don't have the competency or don't have the mental health or whatever's going on. Like I, I'm not saying we abandon that sector or those challenges at all, but I cannot for the life of me look at how our current government and I have I make no qualms about getting political. I think Trudeau is the most incompetent prime minister in the freaking world. And and I say that a little tongue in cheek because I know there's some really, uh, you know, probably third world countries where, you know, he looks like a saint, but not here. And my point is, is he's crushing that part of our country that we need that's going to have that productivity to produce those jobs, to actually lead uh, and take Canada and put it on the map. I say right now that, you know, given the demand for commodities, given how Canada is a supplier of commodities, and we can do it in, you know, in an environmentally responsible way, yet we're just not really embracing it. And, you know, shutting down pipelines and telling the world that fertilizer sucks. I mean, it just absolutely makes me lose my mind. And we talk about ESG and nitrogen being, you know, we have a government that's saying nitrogen using fertilizers, not good when we have a farming community, the best in the world saying, no, we've got this stuff, we got this handled. And, you know, Justin, you've probably never even been to a farm. It just literally, I, I don't even know what to say with it. I get incredibly frustrated with it. And so it's hard to be optimistic on that side of it. So we sit here and we can bitch and complain and moan and do all the rest of it. I'm not sure that putting in a new prime minister, whoever that new PM might be, is going to fix the problem either. So it's hard to look at it in an optimistic way. And that's a little bit of a rant on my part. I get it. But, you know, do you see it differently? Am I stepping over something in this, Ron, that maybe you see a light at the end of this tunnel and you're saying, well, there's a light at the end of this tunnel and it's not a train, you know, it's something that you can point out that I'm missing. <laughs> well, I, I absolutely believe in climate change. I, uh, I believe it in my bones. This is true, but there's a couple, there, there is a big, but as long as they're still opening coal burning power plants in China, which they are, as long as they're burning wood for heat, in parts of Malaysia and all kinds of parts of Africa. Germany. Well, okay, we can't get started on Germany. It is like the craziest place on earth when it comes to energy. Here's the thing. We must produce and ship liquid natural gas. As long as these coal plants are open, as long as people are burning wood, we have a better solution. And when all those coal plants are gone and when everybody stops burning wood, we stop shipping natural gas. But that's probably about 25 years. So the idea that anybody would suggest there's no business case for liquid natural gas in Canada, it disqualifies you. It disqualifies you. It doesn't make any sense. So, yes, we have political issues. We have provinces that don't want pipelines to run across it. We have provinces where groups of individuals fight the, the pipeline, not always for any environmental reasons, but in actuality, they fight the pipeline because they didn't get a, night, a big enough cut of the money mm -hmm. and they want their share. Uh, so there's a lot of senseless reasons. Let's face facts. If there's coal burning, it should be replaced with liquid natural gas. It should be replaced with natural gas until we have solutions for all of it. And the solution, best solution probably, 
is nuclear. And we got a lot of uranium. We actually, uh, at one point, led the world in, in percentage of uranium production for country our size. And we still have a ton of it. And we also used to have a great uh, forward thinking to promote the use of uranium. We had a forward thinking reactor industry, which, of course, we just let completely die. And there's a minister of the environment who's, who they actually had to take a cattle prod to him to get him to say nuclear was okay because he fought nuclear for the first 30 years of his life. But we have got to make better decisions. Nuclear is the answer. And we have production, we have the product, we have the know how. I mean, the French have been dining off reactor technology. People don't realize that they are one of the biggest builders and designers of reactors in the world. And they don't have one ounce of uranium in France. So we just got to think better, think more clearly. One of the reasons we have all these wonderful things in Canada, like healthcare and like a great social safety net, is because Alberta, Saskatchewan, and parts of northern British Columbia that supply energy to the world, and we've been reaping the benefits of that through massive tax income. Mm-hmm. And not just taxing ourselves, but taxing the export of all these products. It's been an enormous help to Canada, a tremendous help to Canada. And to say that we're going to just shut it down in five or six or seven years, when there's still coal burning plants, when people are still lighting wood on fire to heat, to, to, to cook, in countries of the world, it doesn't make sense. We have to do it in a better way. So do you think, what's your thoughts, Ron? I mean, I look at it and I can't help but think, and I know this sometimes goes down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory, and that's not the intention of this. But when we look at the decisions that are being made and the numbers kind of show or shine a light on what's really happening when it comes to the fact to your point, public service or public sector is growing. Uh, self-employed small business owners are actually shrinking, the trending down. Do you think that there's some intentionality around the fact that shutting down small business or shutting down, you know, uh, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, it it almost seems like it would have to be intentional, but I'm probably missing something there too. Uh, I just don't see the growth in that. And when we look at SMEs overall, it's getting more and more difficult. And certainly even with the shift in banking and interest rates, you know, they don't want to capitalize their business. Then we got tax consequences that they're now paying and struggling with. I don't know. What's your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm just kind of a broad overview of that. I really look at it and I go, we're just not a entrepreneur friendly country. And I've seen the difference. I'm gonna get, let me share with you is that although I, I call myself bi-provincial, I, I born and raised in Alberta. I've got businesses that I still have in Edmonton. I live in both Edmonton and British Columbia. I'm here in the Fraser Valley. I hang out. Uh, we got a beautiful property, five acres outside of Abbotsford. And the reason I share that only is that when I came to BC originally about a dozen years ago and started spending time here, I saw what was happening in Abbotsford. And Abbotsford had this really tough, not business-friendly attitude. That changed when the mayor of Abbotsford back then changed to Henry Braun. Henry Braun was himself a very successful business guy beyond, uh, you know, he ran a multi, like, I want to say the business was seven, eight hundred million dollars a year, plus a very uh, successful cattle ranch. My point is, is that very business savvy, numbers aside. He literally 
put Abbotsford on the map in terms of its business friendliness. He expanded the airport. He drove you know people to that airport. He brought business in, and it really changed Abbotsford as a city. And it was very very impactful. We're not doing that as a country, let alone some of the smaller cities. I see it in Calgary, seem to be far more entrepreneurial in terms of their friendliness. But how do you see it? You know, you're in the business, you're looking at mortgage applications, you're seeing how people are, like you've got a little bit of a background on some of this stuff, I think, uh, enough to form an opinion. What's your thoughts? Well, it's true. I, we see a ton of applications. We see a ton of income types. We see, uh, you know, we, we, it gives us a bit of a, cross-section of Canadian employment. Let me speak to one question first. I, I'm a big, big believer that you should never chalk anything up to a conspiracy that can be explained by general ignorance. <laughs> by uh, stupidity. Uh, okay, yes, uh, <laughs> got it. <laughs> I, I, I've been very lucky. I'm, I'm very lucky to make a friend that's a, a, a person in the political consulting world. Um, he's, he's in, it's, the name's David Hurley. He and a couple of great podcasts, curse politics, and the very early. And I've been a devoted listener for years now and a bit of a friend of David. And what you learn is, is that it's not that they're trying to hurt anyone. They just have a political agenda to attract a certain votes. Now, we've got a country where you get to run the country on about 36, 36.5% of the vote. Okay, you get to be the prime minister on that basis. So you just have to attract the people who are in your base, encroach a little bit on some of the other folks, and you get to be the PM. You get to run the country. And you know, the folks that you're after want to hear about a certain agenda, then you're going to have to keep going on that agenda. I mean, that, that, that's what got you there. That's what brought you to the dance. You got to keep dancing. So it's not necessarily, see, I, although I don't, completely disagree with some of the failings of the current leadership of the country. I do think that in essence, almost all of these people, uh, probably a a decent majority of the people who are in leadership and in politics today or become members of parliament or members of the legislature, they actually want to do good. They don't want to do bad. Don't get me wrong. There's a few who are just feathering their nest. 100% that exists. You and I know that exists. That's available. But the vast majority of them want to do good. They just get caught up in the politics. Like, if you're Justin Trudeau, it's very hard for you to say, yeah, um, we need to cut departments and government. I mean, we, we need to, to just lean it out. We need to lay people off. It's very hard to say, yeah, I'm so pro-nuclear. I want to build 10, I want to start construction of 10 plants next year in Canada. You're just not, it's the politics don't work. So is it necessary that they're bad people? There's a few bad ones. Yes, I can I note a few bad politicians in my day. People are just in, in it to, to, to extract money from the system. But a lot of people just also just believe in what they're doing. But to get elected, they have to promote a particular brand of thinking and appeal to the base of voters. So I don't, I don't really subscribe to the, the fact that some, some of these people are, I don't really believe anybody's a lizard person, that you're just going to peel back the last bit, put zipper on the back of their heads, and uh, the lizard's going to pop out to eat children. But I do believe that you could end up going down a completely wrong path. You know, what you talked about Germany a few minutes ago, it's just a shocking state of affairs. 
Germany has disintegrated billions and billions and billions of dollars on wind and solar that has come nowhere near the requirements for power, not even close to their requirements for energy. And the shutting down of the nuclear plants in the face of a loss of Russian natural gas, it's frankly crazy. It's political insanity, and it makes no sense. So, yes, can politics lead you down a wrong road? Absolutely, it can. Uh, do I think that they're all bad people? Probably not. Do I think that there's a conspiracy? Nope. General dumbness will put you through every time, as opposed yeah. to... Yeah, you know, and I think that's a good point. It is, no, it is true. It is true, right? I think that in general, people are actually, they're well-intended, except for they're ill-informed and ill-educated. They lack a level of competency. So, you know, it's hard. I think... You know I, what? I, I gotta say this. They can actually be pretty smart. But when you get into politics and you win the job, yeah. you want to hold on to it. So you end up having to go down policy rabbit holes that you might not even believe in yourself. That yeah. You might realize, hey, I think I need to make a big change, but I can't because my voters want it and I want to keep getting elected. So that makes it the politics over policy mantra that they all kind of tend to lean on. And I get it. You know, I, I look at it, though, and, you know, I'm I, I like you. I think what I come to the conclusion around this whole, you know, the just to finish up on the, the brief comment of conspiracy is I think people go to conspiracy because it's just hard to believe that anybody can be that dumb or that ill-informed or just that incompetent. But that's what we're facing. So, you know, one of my own philosophies when I look at Justin is that, you know, as a trust funder, I come to realize I was thinking about it. And here's my my own philosophy on it is that he was born a trust funder. He's never had to pay a bill. He's probably had to sign a check, but he's never had to write one. He's never had to balance a budget. It was spend. Don't spend so much. Okay, mom, I won't spend so much. Like there's no competence. Compare that to the mayor of Abbotsford, for example, who ran businesses, who understands budget, who understands leadership and people. And, you know, it's a total it's like 180 degrees from a leader such as our current prime minister. And yet we are at the effect of the bullshit and the gaslighting and the lying. And I'm looking at it going, how is this even possible? How did we get here? Now, back to an earlier conversation, Ron, is that you and I have both been through cycles of, you know, economic cycles. We've been through lots of politicians what the hell's different this time? Is it because it's global? Is it because social media is more there? Why is it so, like, it seems such such a urgent, dynamic, on-the-edge time in this world politically? And let's just even talk strictly Canada. Forget about what's going on in the rest of the world. Is it always been this bad and we just didn't know it? Or is it just kind of on steroids these days? What's your thoughts? This changed everything. Uh, Social media has changed the way we live hmm. as it has allowed people to exist in an even more tribal form than we ever imagined. Mm -hmm. That's just the truth. I mean, you could have the strangest, kookiest, most dangerous ideas in the world. And 20 years ago, if you started talking about it, people in a workplace, people at a party would say, don't say that anymore. That's crazy. Okay, but today, you can find a community of people who believe exactly the same way you do. Yeah. You know, that just didn't exist. You know, um, world's opening up again. We're traveling again. We're seeing people again. We're going to conventions again. 
I was in, uh, I'm getting together in Austin, Texas, talking to a bunch of mortgage brokers. I'm old, all them all only in their forties. So they've got young children and they were related, an enormous number of them related to me, how their teenagers and early 20 year olds had anxiety that required therapy and medication by a steep number, a large number. And the only reason that I could possibly see behind that is the rise of social media. Because let's face it, nobody's deeper in their fall than the teenager. That's the reality. So yes, is there something really different than when we were younger? Yeah, it's social media. Social media is the most impactful thing that's occurring, has occurred in the last 15 years. It is a big, big thing because People can be completely atomized and tribalized and find, no matter how on the idea, no matter how strange the thought, you can find a community of like-minded people. And what it also means is the death of authority. I mean, you're probably old enough to remember a guy by the name of Walter Cronkite. Oh, yes, so, I am. Yeah. Cronkite, when I was a kid, when Walter Cronkite decided that the Vietnam War was bad, the president of the United and he sent it on the air, the president, he's a reporter, he's an announcer, he's a news announcer, okay? When he said it on the air, the president of the United States, Lyndon Johnson, gave up and said, we're going to have to end this war because of Walter Cronkite's against me. Hmm. There is no central authority anymore. Authority is, there's no honest voice of reason anymore uh, because there just isn't. There's tribes, and that's a dangerous place for every society. So... Some of the things we're seeing today are the result of that. Some of the things we're seeing today are the result of a profound shift. You know, you and I could make a case that we were born with a genetic jackpot. We are relatively large white males in North America. And we started out being born in the 1950s. And the world was our oyster. The world was laid out to help us and to provide uh, a great opportunity for us. And Warren Buffett says it best. He says, I'm part of the genetic, I won the genetic lottery, okay? Mm-hmm. A six two white heterosexual man born in America at a time of enormous growing prosperity. So yeah, we were lucky. We had a, a great start. But the truth is today, a lot of people don't feel the same way. A lot of people in their 20s and 30s just don't feel that. They feel that things are against them. And one of the primary things and why I talk about it all the time is that if you're 20, 30 years old, you're 25, 35 years old, and you were raised in a house with a yard, single family detached house with a yard and two car garage, you know, what car garage, and, and you, that was what you were raised in and what your expectation was. When you reached a point now that you would simply like the same thing, and you're confronted with the notion that it's impossible. You're going to have to live in a 575 square foot condo for the rest of your natural life. When you're confronted with that, it just might sour your disposition and make you a little bit negative on life. So those are some of the things I think about, frankly, daily as some of the problems we're faced with right now. Yeah, and I'm with you on that one. You know, when we let you know, as we circle back a little bit around housing, I want to kind of see and kind of get a feel for where you see it going and what you think will start to happen. One of the 
things that I looked at. And, you know, Steve Suretsky, our mutual friend, Steve Suretsky, shared on his podcast that I actually expanded on it because he didn't hit it. You know, we look at what the Bank of Canada is doing, what the government is trying to do in terms of slowing demand, actually stopping demand. And we went through, he went through the list and I expanded on it. There was foreign buyers tax that they put in place. And this is over the past five years, primarily driven Vancouver, Toronto, probably Toronto first, of course. But anyways, they put in foreign buyers tax. They put in a mortgage stress test. They then went to, in BC, a speculation tax. Then they put in a empty homes tax. They then implemented further rent controls, but let's just say they implemented rent controls. They then put in, as we talked of earlier, the fastest and greatest increase in interest rates in the history. Then they had investor investor financing mortgage qualifications in terms of they tightened that. And then coming this June, the premium rates are with CMHC financing are going to increase by 1.55 for multi-unit loan insurance select properties and 0.85% or 0.75% for standard rental housing, uh, retirement and supportive housing and student housing, single room occupancy properties. All of that. And yet prices continue to increase. We continue to deal with all the issues that we deal with. And they still haven't, and nor do I believe they will, deal with the supply issue. So they've tried to crush demand on top of bringing a million plus people into the country. And I'm all for immigration, like you, and I know you are. We need immigration. I think it's wonderful. But it is like, you guys, can you get some control around it? Like, this is what bureaucrats do. Bureaucrat, be a bureaucracy and get this freaking handled in terms of how immigrants are coming into this country. Put some controls on there. I don't know what the answer is there. But anyways, so when we look at housing, I just don't see it going down. And then on top of it, they're trying to handicap investors. Whether we agree with investors or not is is really inconsequential. There's some great investors out there. And at the end of the day, mom and pops are supplying almost 50%, well over 40% of rental housing, which we need. I don't know. Uh, I it's really hard to imagine how this housing market is going to go anything more but up. I don't know. What's your thoughts? Well, my thought is that I I, I used to be a big fighter on the demand side too. That uh, you know, I'm sort of in favor of a lot of those measures. This Steve outlined, uh, particularly empty halls tax and, and that type of thing. We should in the country. It's like Canada. There shouldn't be any empty halls. Doesn't make any sense. Okay, but. Here's the thing. I've been forced to be a complete supply sider now. Like, because my God, when you dig into how badly this is screwed up, it's unbelievable. And to your point of immigration, I'm a big supporter of immigration. I had a great reply to a tweet the other day when the, the person said to me, Rod, I like immigration too. But the, all this is on a government who is bringing in a million people in a year to be prepared for them. That's the most logical thing that I got. I ever got out of it was, yes, you owe that to these people. Come. You owe that to all of us. You have to be prepared for it. So we have slid into this ridiculous supply crisis because when you study it, you realize, wait, government through taxation has become one of the biggest contributors to the cost of the homes. You know, if you look back 30 years ago, 
I quite clearly remember when I bought it, but I bought a home, um, that's maybe about 30, uh, 33 years ago now, three, sure, that's a while. I builder told the, the person representing a builder told me that the lot price, you know, the whole, you bought the lot from the city and it was about $35,000. That was the price of the lot. I had to throw in a few fees to support you had to actually in, in the area that I was in, you had to pay, you had to put in the roads yourself. You did the builder, the developer had to put in the roads, stew the curbs, you had to make sure that they're there. And they had to set aside land and money for community centers and libraries. And that was on the builder. But we've gone into this incredible place where the last estimate was that for all forms of taxes that I saw, this was just two weeks ago, that in Ontario and British Columbia, they contributed to nearly 30% of the cost of a home. So that's insane. It's crazy. We looked at a, a study just a week ago. In the city of Toronto, the average time to get a new bill approved is three point two years. Three point two years, and we haven't even started talking about all the inspections that go back to the drawing board, start all over again. Like we have ruined the development of new homes in this country. We've ruined it through bureaucracy, red tape, foolishness. Like the provincial government, Ontario. Said they would pull some homes out of the green belt, pull some, pull some land out of the green belt for homes that was needed. And the protests that went up, it's as if you were murdering people. Okay, we're, we're talking about land that's essentially scrub land. And they're talking, oh, no, you can't, you can't use that. I mean, once you say it's green belt, it's green belt for eternity. It's Canada. We have the second largest land mass in the world. You got to think this through. This is nuts to say that you can't build on land in Ontario. Crazy people come up with ideas like, oh, no, no. I mean, you know, it's, there's just, we're just running out of land in southwestern Ontario. That's crazy. I could drive around <laughs> Ontario. There is no shortage of land. Oh, but we'll lose farmland. Sure. Well, just encourage more agriculture in the prairies. We know it'll, it'll powder. Don't worry. They know how to, how to, grow stuff and raise animals in the prairies, we're going to be fine, okay? We're going to, we, we can even expand some of it in northern Ontario, because I think cattle, there is cattle in Montana, it's just as cold as it is in northern Ontario, we can figure this out. But the reaction of, of interest groups, small interest groups, to rational thought has just butchered the supply situation. Government's addiction to tax, they found the greatest cash cow in the world was new housing. And in the old days, you know, municipal governments were out of property tax. That's out the window. Now what we're going to do is we're going to pretend we're taxing the developers when they build a building or they build a housing subdivision. We're going to say, oh, no, we're taxing the developer. No, you're not. The developer just blows it right through to the consumer. You're not taxing the developer at all. You're just lying. It's the consumer who pays all those taxes, all those levies. All those permit costs, every single penny comes from the home buyer. That's reality. There is that is one thing that will get me angry, even though I believe there's good people in government, people who want to do good, they're inclined to lie a little too frequently. And when, when something is, is something, they want to misuse the facts and start to say, John Tory raised the, the ex mayor of Toronto. Oh, you know what happened to him. Yep. But we, we, the ex mayor of Toronto, in one year, 2021, 
raised development cost 49%. Now you think that's not inflationary? His whole point was, don't worry. It's just it's just the developers are going to pay it. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. The consumer pays it. The person who wants to buy the condo pays it. The developer just passes it on. The developer is going to make exactly the same amount of profit. So that's the lies that politicians tell us. And that's the part that will make me mad. I don't believe they're fundamentally bad people. But I do believe that as soon as they slip into lying to us, that they're harboring us. So I've become a big Big, big believer in supply. We've got to pull out all the stops to build more. It's like Al Davis with the Oakland Raiders. God, there's even a Raider Oakland anymore. But through Al Davis with the Oakland Raiders, he had one key thought in his mind when he talked to his players. Just win, baby, win. So my thought is just build in the lower mainland wherever possible. I mean, you know, build up if you have to. You've got parts of Vancouver that are totally devoted to single black family homes that could easily handle three plexes, four plexes. There's so much we could do. Ontario's a big place. You know why you like Calgary? One of the reasons you like Calgary is that they don't hate building houses in Calgary and they're not afraid of the car. I mean, yeah, it's spread out. Calgary takes up a lot of room now, yeah. but everybody likes it. Everybody likes to have their own home. Everybody likes to have a townhouse. Not everybody wants to live in a 530-square-foot condo. And in Calgary, people can't. Prices are reasonable because development is easier, cheaper, and more efficient in Calgary than it is in all these other big cities. So let's just call it for what it is. We need politicians. We need government. We need these people to abandon their false narratives. Again, I don't think they're bad people, but to abandon false narratives, embrace the truth, and just build, baby, build. Just build. We've got to do it. You can't bring in a million people and not be prepared. That's the, by the way, we're probably going to bring in another million this year. Yeah. I mean, there's looking a chance. That way. It's looking that way. I think there's a, you know, there's a lot in all of what you said that really kind of shuts me down around certain things. And, you know, first off, we go back to the politics over policy. To your point, you know, somebody gets elected, the first thing they're trying to do is figure out how to get reelected. Then we have those individuals that, you know, we'll call them the NIMBYs, we'll just shine a light on that particular cohort of people. And, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease because they seem to be where we think the votes or the politicians think the votes are going to go. Ultimately, if we don't have politicians that have the nerve to say no, to stand up, to take a stand, period, I think we're never going to see this problem come to an end. We've got a fundamental problem, which is, to your point, is we have a country that is dependent on debt. It is dependent on tax revenue that is driven by our housing. I mean, think about the billions of dollars that is made, to your point, on the production of homes and then how that trickles through to the consumer. Then on top of, you know, as you said, 32% on top of after-tax dollars that are being used to buy that particular home. And then, of course, there's transfer taxes and there's all of the things that go along. And so our housing industry, even if it's slowing down in a healthy way, we run into another problem, which is going to be, where's that tax revenue going to come from? And in the world of taxflation, which is what we are under the pressure of right now, uh, it's not going to look good. And so it's hard to see a future for 
you know, the younger, we'll call it the younger generation, those 30 year olds, 35 year olds, 40 year olds. I look into the future. I've got two grandchildren. And I'm going, what the hell is that going to look like? You know? And so it is an interesting time that we live through and, you know, kind of somewhere along the line in our conversation, I suggested, I think it has to be guys like you or guys like me that are willing to kind of stand up every so often and say, no, get your head out of your ass. We need to build. We need to deal with the issue, which is supply. And that means you're going to piss some people off because you're going to block views. You're going to have parking on the street that you weren't used to having before. You're going to have a fourplex. You know, one of the things that I'll just totally tangent, but, you know, the the initiative of I'll actually give Edmonton uh, city workers credit. And they said, you know something? When we go to zone some of these areas to put in a small, let's say, a, I don't know, we'll use a daycare as an example or a lawyer's office in a residential area, we're causing too many blocks. We don't need to. It's a waste of our time. There's nothing wrong with some of these buildings in terms of if we give it a framework that says, okay, within these parameters, you can go infill put a lawyer's office in there, put a daycare in there. We don't need to approve 17 different ways. We need to rubber stamp at the end because you already know what you need to do. And if you achieve that, go build. So they took out like literally five layers of bureaucracy. And, and where I give credit to it is those are city workers who are going, this is not efficient. This is not a good use of our time. And we're not solving the problems that we're dealing with. I went, wow. So if Edmonton could do it, maybe somebody else can. So a long-winded way of saying that the supply issue is definitely a solution, but I just don't see how we're going to solve it given our dependency on those tax dollars. Listen, the, the good news is it is fixable. It is fixable. Yes, we're going to have to have smaller numbers of people in government. Yes, we're going to have to collect less tax. Yes, we're going to have to find a way to carve costs out. Look, what's wrong with the idea that if you're, you approach a builder as a government and say, look, if you only build for first-time home buyers and build it within a certain size range, within a you know all multiple dwelling, whether they be triplexes or fourplexes or duplexes, whatever just semis, whatever the heck it is, if we will provide an enormous tax break for you to build to people who are only first-time buyers, sounds like a crazy idea. People say, "Oh, Ron, you can never do that. It's not enforceable. People will trick you." Well, let's try it. We don't try anything except increase taxes. In this country, we don't try anything. When do we ever try here? So why don't we just say, let's see if we can we look at a, a situation where at the average home in um, the average single dwelling unit in not not multi multifamily towers, but the average triplex, duplex, fourplex, that there's about a hundred and eighty-two thousand dollars worth of taxes, levies, permit fees, different costs associated with that property, just to start with, is $180,000 with government money to start with. Why don't we give half of that back and say, no, we'll give you a full tax credit if you build rational size supply for first-time home market. Why don't we try anything? Some of the people come to me and say, well, you know, Ron, this problem is really complex. We're going to have to study the hell out of it. Just try something. Try cutting taxes. Try cutting fees. Try just saying, look, what do we got to do here? We got to build some single family homes. Let's get the money in, in place to the highways and the sewers and the water right now. Let's make it happen. Let's not have to go through 
300 epilogical studies and 25 archaeological studies. And if we find an arrowhead, we got to stop and wait for a year. Look, we just have to change our approach. It's not a big change. It's just the will to do it. So wait, you're right. It's depressing because people say, well, God, we've gone this long and nobody's done a damn thing that's sensible. But we know there's sensible options. And like I said, just try something. We go years studying things. We go years having commissions. We go years having uh, more studies after the study. We change our minds about what to do. Oh, we're going to build this project here. Wait, two years have gone by. Uh, when we should build this? Just build it. Just do something. Take action. And let's start to think about why widening lanes on the highway takes five years. Like, I, I, I think we, it's better at Calgary. It's better in Alberta. Well, I got a feeling in Abbotsford, when you've got to rely on the provincial government to widen lanes on a highway, you're looking for half a decade to go by before it's actually finished. Like, why does this stuff take so long? It can't be that hard. It just can't. It's got to be a will to do it. Well, it isn't that hard. And the challenge that we face, I think, again, is that, you know, as business owners, we think and look at life through a different set of lenses. And so what we work backwards from doesn't often include a whole bunch of politics. And if it does, we kind of are able to navigate those roads. And I just, when we look at the people who we'd like to have in office to have that degree of experience or savviness, they're not willing to deal with it. So we're not actually getting politicians, we're getting MBAs and we're getting definitely getting politicians well-educated, but you know, they're, they're theorists at best in terms of what they want to apply and, and they study civil engineering and they study all sorts of things. Uh, and a lot of that stuff, you, you know, you just can't, it doesn't work in real life given what's going on. So I think that's part of the challenge that we face. And, you know, when I look into the future, we, I look at real estate as a regional thing. I also look at it, you know, from an investor point of view, again, I, I get as frustrated with the speculators that screw up the market as anybody else does. I try and, you know, teach and coach in a responsible, treat your real estate investing like a business, look at your tenants as clients, understand what it is you're investing in, what's your exit strategy, what's your timelines, and being really responsible for it. I look at what's happening in the immigration, and what we know about immigrants is they come into the country, it is at least two years before they buy a home generally. Uh, few have the cash to do it. They don't have a credit rating. They don't even know necessarily what their job is. And they certainly don't necessarily know where the hell they want to live. They're looking for their own culture. They're looking for their own language, their own food. Where do I hang out with my people? And that takes time to put into place. So it's like two years at least where they need nice housing, where they need a nice place to live. And when we, and that doesn't even address the issue of international students or temporary workers. Uh, that's a whole different conversation. But what we don't have is that supply. And I look at, for example, for supply. And I mean, we know, I know a lot of very sophisticated and savvy investors, smaller developers who can put up fourplexes, eightplexes, you know, duplexes. They do it in their sleep. But it's not easy. They make it harder to get financing because, oh, you've got far too big a portfolio. You know, we're going to cap you at 10 doors or you're going to have to go to a B lender over here and a private lender over there and, you know, get some bridge financing here. So you have to be very, very kind of equipped, if you will, 
from a knowledge base to even deal with that. And I'm seeing more and more, and this is what is a little bit frightening for me, and I'm sure you're seeing it as well, Ron, is the number of investors that are going, fuck this, I'm going to the US, and they're actually literally going to the US to build their real estate portfolios and take their skills and their knowledge into the US, where it is far more investor friendly, and there's still demand for rental housing, which is what we've got here in Canada, but we make it harder. And Derek Lobo was, just did a post today, and we look at, uh, and Derek is a good friend and had many conversations with him. And when we look at that multifamily space, which he, of course, is an expert in, he's going, yeah, it's not great. It's, we have moments where we're really optimistic it's going to be awesome. But even the multifamily apartment style is taking time to build. It's not enough, and it's not going to accommodate what we need to accommodate. So I don't know where I was going with that long-winded rant, but... Anyways, that's what I'm seeing is the challenges. Grant, you know, the most successful home builder in recent times in Canada has been a man named Peter Gilda at uh, Madwood Homes. And the, it was a, in, very impactful to me when he brought up the fact four years ago that I am reallocating my resources to Texas. Mm -hmm. I can build a subdivision in Texas with approvals in six months that take six years in Canada. So I know where I'm going to deploy my capital, my skills, my ability, and my best people. And that was a shocking, shocking thing for me to hear. Mm. Because that's somebody who is born and raised here in Ontario, somebody who staked his billions here in Ontario. And he says, I love my country. I love where I live, but it doesn't make sense anymore. I need to go to Texas mm. and build. Because you can build in Texas. You can't build here. I was recently in Austin. I'll tell you one thing I noticed about Austin, Texas, uh, apart from the barbecue, because this might come as a shock to you, but I like to eat. <laughs> uh, the apart from the barbecue, I noticed the average person in Austin, just the average person walking around, driving around, seemed a lot more relaxed, happy, and friendly than folks are here in Canada. Because you could buy a nice house in Austin still on the outskirts, but you can buy a nice house off to the date. We're still under $300,000. So wow. you, you're, you're going to be okay. Um, and life is better when you're not in this crazy, highly expensive, high mortgage, high payment world that we've been One last thing to think about as to some of the points you raised, all in good. I think one of the reasons that people like you and I have a different view of things and that the majority of business owners and entrepreneurs, self-employed people in general, have a slightly different view of how things should work is this. I say it to everybody and I, I mean it really deeply. You have never understood business until you have to go into your visa card to make your payroll. Because almost all of us have gone through it one day, there was one point in the beginnings of our business where we had to do that. And you never, you, you never think the same afterwards. You realize two things. Part of being in business is being in business for your employees and your client. And it's not just about you. It's not just about you making more money. And that's, I think, what you're talking about is lacking in some of the folks who are making these policy decisions. You have to be absolutely committed 
to keeping the thing rolling, keeping your people paid, and keeping things operating. And when there's an endless supply of money, such as there is in government, you don't have to feel that pressure. You just make some more money out of thin air through taxation. And that's what we've been experiencing in a big way for the last 10 years. And I think, you know, we're feeling the effects. But it's not hopeless. We know how to build plate. We know how to build homes here. We know how to build. Just let us build in D.C., in Alberta, in uh, southwestern Ontario, in Quebec. Although they don't, they don't, by the way, well, we're bringing a million people in. If Quebec's only taken 50,000. So, uh, smart. But, but <laughs> I, I don't know if they're that smart because, you know, they have a very low birth rate in Quebec. Yeah, they do. So, my point is just this we can fix this. This is just building places for people to live. This is uh, this isn't all new technology. This isn't quantum computing. This isn't miraculous breakthroughs. This is just building up places for people to live, so that the pressure is off. Because the pressure, the high prices you're talking about today, is predicated on a lack of listings. It's predicated on a lack of inventory. It's predicated on the fact you've got people who are in. 75-year amortization variable mortgages, or they have 2.49 fixed rates, and they don't want to sell and buy and end up with a blend that's going to increase their payment enormously. So that there's not enough sellers, equals scarcity, equals higher prices. This is like the most simplistic thing on earth. If we just got building, if we just put solar supply into the system, uh, eventually things would straighten themselves out. But we're just not doing it. We're going to build fewer homes in Canada this year than we did in 2021. I know. Yeah. 271 uh, in 2021, I think, and 221 uh, in 2023, something along that line. And point is, is it's trending down, not up. And that's what we have to go. So, you know, Ron, as you've been very generous with your time and I, this has been a great conversation for me. I feel like I've had a chance to <laughs> rant a little bit and, and listen to you and, and gain some additional perspective. But I'm, I, a big, I'm a big ranter myself. <laughs> so the thing that, you know, what I, what I, you know, any, and you look at it, I think through a slightly different lens because a lot of your clients are end users, homeowners, and not that you don't do business with investors, but your real focus is, I think, looking after those first-time home buyers, next-time home buyers, et cetera. The home buyers, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and whereas, whereas for me, I'm looking at it and saying, okay, how do we create a financial future giving, given what's going on in the world today? I'm a big believer in real estate and remain that in Canada. I believe that through this uncertainty, this confusion, and all of the chaos that seems to be going on lives opportunity. You have to be strategic. You have to be smart. You uh, can't rush. Don't force the river. There are deals to be um, had in the industry, and they're hard to find. And I you know, often share with investors, I said, you know, if you're looking for gold and diamonds and platinum and all the rest of it, you don't just walk down the beach picking it up. You got to dig for it. You got to blow shit up. You got to try and find it because to your earlier point is that 
there is always a motivated vendor. There's always somebody that has a problem that you need to be solved, that needs to be solved. And this is not to say to swoop down and take advantage of anybody, because I don't believe in that. What I do believe is that there are win-win scenarios that get created by people that find themselves in circumstances that uh, may be beyond their control. Everything from fired to job transfers, to divorces, to deaths, to all things that happen, I got to get the hell out of this. If you can come in and approach it from a problem-solving place, uh, win-win situation, investors do have opportunities. And I look at what's going on in the world. I mean, gosh, we never even talked about what's going on, you know, Russia, China, Ukraine, Europe, UK. I mean, there's we have a global issue that seems to be unfolding and I'm looking at it and going, okay, you know, how do I secure my financial future? And as much as I might look at precious metals and cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin, I look at real estate. I always come back to that foundation of real estate. I believe in it. And the good news around all of it is in all of this clusterfuckery that's going on, I think there's opportunity. And that's kind of how I look at it. And, and I know that when I hear and speak with guys like you, it does leave me hope in that we do have some great leaders and we do have some perspective that sometimes we get so in the rabbit hole of listening to our politicians that I go, there is no hope. And then I can have a conversation with somebody like yourself. And I go, yeah, no, there is hope. I, I see that, you know, you look through a little different lens than I do, only little. But it is, you have a, a kind of a ha glass half full view of the world, although you don't think it's easy. And, and I appreciate that. It's not easy. The stuff about Recarbo is not easy. We've gone down too many wrong roads uh, in, in this country for a while now. Um, the idea that you, would, that you would know that you need to build more housing and then observe the fact you're building less should create an absolute panic in all levels of government. Yeah. Do not see. So we're going to have to come up with some kind of visionary. I'll tell you this much. Some of the people in charge of the politics uh, on the, uh, the conservative side want to promote housing as the biggest issue in the coming, whatever the next federal election is. Mm -hmm. And all I can tell you is I sure as hell hope they get I sure as hell hope they spend all their time thinking about shaping it, a truthful policy, not a fake policy, because you got to remember, I'm not against, I don't think Trudeau's a lizard person, but we have to agree that in 2015, he said he was going to build more new homes. The reality is, saying that in every election, and it's never happened any of the times. Mm -hmm. So just the fact that there might be somebody come in who could take a fresh start and say, you know what? We got a lot of crown land. I got a lot of federal land. We're going to start to convert it to residential zoning today. Today, we're going to do it. I mean, we're going to take office. It's the first bill we're going to put through. Then we're going to arrange to penalize municipalities and provinces that don't cut red tape by stopping federal fund transfers, which the provinces and the municipalities need. I agree. So we want to take a very aggressive stance to say, enough is enough. We're going to change this stuff now. We are going to root out the crazy nimbyism that's going to go with to the Supreme Court of a province about cutting down trees. We're going to eliminate that. We're going to find the way to do it because it's doable. We can get people in who are devoted to the cause. 
And I think it's possible. I don't think it's impossible. If we can get people who believe that there really is a crisis, if more people arrive than they have a, ever before double, ever before in the past, and that we will not have places for them to lay their heads. Because let's face it, you talk about the students, you talk about temporary workers, there's houses in this city, not more than 10 minutes away from where I'm sitting in the city of Toronto, where there's students living eight to a basement, and their only means of subdividing the basement is a curtain where they sleep. So it's, it's literally the worst kind of third world poverty for $800 a sleeping space. I mean, if you wonder how people can have $1.8 million houses in the outskirts of Toronto, if you got eight people sleeping in your basement paying $800 a head, you're going to be able to find a way to survive that. But it's the wrong way. We shouldn't have that in Canada. We need to take action, and we need to make sure that there's something better shows up quickly. Beautifully. Well said. So again, well, I appreciate your time. We, uh, I'm going to have to have you back, dude, because we got a lot to talk about. We never got to talk about you, which is really uncharacteristic of the Everyday Millionaire podcast. So I will, though, however, um, finish the podcast with what I like to do with I call rapid fire questions that are rarely rapid fire and just have a little bit of fun with it and lighten up around it. So uh, you ready for a few questions? Absolutely. Okay. Apple or Android? Android. Oh, no kidding. That's brave. Brave. Do you have a favorite swear word? Oh, yeah, but I can't use it on the podcast. Why? It, 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 it might have a relationship to see you next Tuesday. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's, I think that's the first I've heard that. That is so good. I, I will use that as a noun, a verb, an adverb. <laughs> I, I'm not working. Okay, I think that's absolutely brilliant. Favorite favorite song or favorite band? Do you have a kind of a music glitch in you? I I'm, I, I don't listen to enough, uh, but but you know I'm, I'm we're all children. We tend to be children of our youth, so uh, '70s rock, even going back to uh, Dylan and uh, I I I can so I knew full verses of you know Gordon Light put past last mm. week and. I know full verses of some of the songs. So, yeah, uh, yeah like the, the big 70s bands, the big 70s rock and roll yeah. band. Favorite movie? Probably The Godfather. I'm still, I'm old enough to say it's probably The Godfather. Yeah, I got that. Favorite book or one that was impactful for you or took you on a whole new, maybe a fork in the road for you or one that you just love to share because it's such a good book? You know, the trouble with me is I read an enormous amount of books. I might read, in some years, I might read 250 books. So it's really, really tough for me to have a favorite book. Like, for instance, right now I'm reading a series of books on Genghis Khan and the Mongol warrior. <laughs> and let me tell you, it is, uh, oh, they are, they literally were some, but that whole thing was some of the worst people you could ever imagine. But some of the lessons it taught about how, Modern a change in technology, tactics, training, and philosophy can rule the world in literally 25 years. Genghis Khan went from being a man alone with three brothers to the largest empire the world had ever seen Whoa. in 25 years. Wow. And some of the stuff, but so that's just one example. Yeah, I just read way too much. Like I I I, I devour. It. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? 
I hate to say it, but it's just true. Uh, I, I go back to, uh, I hate to say it because people get mad and it gets a bit uh, fast and stupid, but uh, I go back to uh, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. It's true, though. It is true. And Ron, what are you grateful for today? I really and truly do believe I'm lucky. Uh, my mother, my mother was born in the Depression, uh, lived through World War II. Uh, her husband died at the age of 57, left her with nothing um, because he'd been a long time in Blit. She had no particular education. She never made much money in her life. The only vacation that she ever took outside of Canada, well, twice, took two vacations outside of Canada, one of which I paid for when I was a, a, later in my life as a teenager, thought this and makes me a good guy. Just I just had some money at the time. So this woman who had, you know, in many ways, nothing but a miserable life, like all of her uh, siblings had a better life. Had, she never had all of her all. She rented her entire life. This woman was relentlessly happy and believed that she was very lucky because she, she had everything she wanted in life. So that's what I learned from her is that, you know, it's not so bad. And even though there are difficult things, I am grateful for the fact that no matter how many terrible things have happened, that you know, you have defeats in business, you have defeats in life, you have uh, crises and you have trauma. At the end of the day, we've been so lucky. You know, I've never broken a bone. I've never been in a house fire. Uh, you know, I, I've had so much good fortune, obviously. I eat whatever I want, and <laughs> I, I I have a hot shower every day. I can't remember the last time I didn't have a hot shower in all my 66 years. So, you know, we are very, very fortunate. We just have to understand just how much we are. Fantastic. That was so well said, and it does take me back to just being grateful. My mom is 95, and so wow. I'm blessed to have her uh, with us to this day, sharp as a tack, although physically she's kind of uh, wear and tear, but uh, she is certainly somebody that I've come to respect even more uh, as I've gotten older and really understand just how wise of a woman she is. So like you, I'm very grateful for the lessons that she brings in the relationship that I'm able to have with her to this day. Uh, very, very cool. But mostly today, I am grateful for having had the opportunity to speak with you, to get to know you a little bit better, to share in some uh, views of the world and uh, to share with our guests some also some insights that you brought and lessons that you've learned over the years. So Ron, I want to say thanks again for joining me on the podcast. So appreciated and look forward to uh, doing it again. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.